Genesis 42 is about a dysfunctional family who played the Let's Pretend Everything is Great game for more than 20 years. Our Truth Encounter study leader, Dave Wurtson, exposes how the Lord will not allow family secrets to remain secrets forever. He will lovingly begin to take off the bandages so he can get at the infection. When the crunch is on and when we can do something that no one's going to ever find out about it, we can all fudge just a little bit. Joseph's brothers spent a lifetime fudging. In fact, the life of Joseph's brothers was filled with dishonesty. As I look around this room, and as I look at the different family structures that are represented, probably some of our families, probably a lot of our families are like Joseph's family. There's some deep, dark secrets that nobody knows about. I want you to think about your life this morning, and I need to think about my life this morning. And it's very possible that some of us are kind of like Joseph's brothers. You see, when something goes bad, when something goes wrong, the temptation is not to be honest about it. The temptation is to cover it and to pretend like nothing's happened. In other words, if we do something wrong, if there's something that goes haywire in our family, if there's something that's not right in our family, if there's something that's not right in our lives, the tendency is for us to cover it and pretend like nothing's happened. And you know what? Often life will go right on. Often life will go right on for 20 years, for longer, and nobody will ever know. But I want to share something with you from the life of Joseph's brothers today that will happen to you. You see, as you go through life, last week we learned about the curve of economics. We learned about how you can go through a seven-year period of prosperity, and then you can suddenly hit times of tremendous devastation, times of tremendous famine and economic problems. As we go through life and we face those down times, sometimes we can feel when we hit the bottom side of that curve that we're under the judgment of God. In fact, what we usually start to think, when there's something that's gone haywire in our life, when there's a sin that's invaded our life and we haven't dealt with it, one of the things that we tend to do during the high time, during the time of prosperity, we have a tendency to say, as long as we're healthy, as long as we have enough money, as long as it seems that there's no effects, no consequences to our sin, we have a tendency to say, well, there isn't even a God. There's some young people here, They'll be raised with Christianity. They'll be raised in our church, and they're going to go out, and they're going to get involved in the world system. They're going to get involved in sin. When they get involved in sin, they'll go through a period of their life where they have a lot of doubt about the reality of God. And while everything is going high, if they're living up in North Dallas and they've got a good job, they're bringing in $75,000, $80,000 a year, they'll have a tendency to say, well, there really isn't a God. And then the bad times will come. You see, during the high time when you're away from God, you have a tendency to say there isn't a God. When the low time comes, though, what you have a tendency to say is God is against me. There is a God. And that God is judging me. He is condemning me. For the next several weeks, we're going to focus on Joseph's interaction with his family. And my prayer with all my heart is that all of us will realize whether it's a wallet or whether it's an illicit affair 
whether it is stealing, whether it's a bum business deal, whether it's cheating on your income tax, whether it's alcoholism, whether it's drugs, whatever it might be, it doesn't work to be dishonest. It doesn't work to steal the truth from those that you love. And as long as you live a life of falsehood, as long as you live a life of denying and covering up, you're going to be away from God. And you're going to go through periods where you don't believe he exists. But when the crunch comes, when the judgment times of life come, you're going to be tempted to feel like God is against me. What I want to tell you is this. Satan is the God of death. Satan is the Lord of the kingdom of darkness. Satan is the one that's out to destroy us. God, even in the bad times, is working a plan of salvation if you open your heart to him. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 42. We ended our session together last week with the whole land of Egypt in the, in the jaws of a terrible famine. Genesis 41 verse 50, it says, when the fa- 56, when the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in the land, in all the world. And so our setting as we begin the story of Joseph today is a time of terrible famine. The crops have failed. The rain has stopped in Canaan. The crops are not yielding grain and there's no bread. But there's bread in Egypt. And what the end of chapter 41 does is tell us that people from the land of Canaan, people from all over, probably from northern Africa, were going to Egypt to get grain. Now you start to put two and two together. Joseph's brothers are living up in Canaan. There is bread in Egypt. Some of the people go down there and they come back and they tell some of Joseph's brothers, hey, there's bread down there in Egypt. You ought to go down there. But look how Joseph's brothers react. At the beginning of chapter 42, when Jacob, we haven't heard anything about Jacob for a long time, and we're going to come to Jacob at the end of our talk today because Jacob, at this time in his life, for the last 20 years, Joseph served in Potiphar's house for seven years. He, he was in jail for six years. And for seven years of prosperity, he was the prime minister of Egypt. You put all that together, we have gone through 20 years since Joseph was sold into slavery. And Joseph was like somebody that's in this room. Jacob went through the terrible experience of having his older boys come back with a blood-stained garment. And he believed that his son was torn apart. As you go through life, one of the challenges that you're going to face is the horror of physical death and the loss of loved ones. One of the board members on Bill Glass's board was on a business trip. And he got the terrible news. His wife was in great shape. When she was home, they both ran together. She walked and he ran. He was away on this trip, so she went walking last week by herself, very early in the morning while it was still dark. She was all done with her walk. She was just finished talking with one of her friends who went walking with her. She stepped off the curve. A guy ran a stop sign, and just like that, she was gone. Bill, when he got up to give a keynote address for his banquet, his annual banquet, he said, you know, I learned that if you're going to play football, you need to learn to play hurt. He said, tonight I'm learning that in life you have to learn to play hurt, because I'm hurt tonight. 
And then he went on and gave his address. And just before he left, he was going out to a prison crusade in Oklahoma. Just before he left last night, he, he was sharing with me. And he says, Dave, you know, as a pastor teacher, I guess you have to deal with this a lot. I said, yes, I do. Many times, almost on a weekly basis, it seems. He looked at me, and this is what he said. He said, you know, Dave, what really makes it hurt so badly is her body was so mangled. And that hurts. Really, really hurts. You know, that's what Jacob faced. You see, we read these stories and we hear about them in Sunday school and we don't enter into the pain and the agony and therefore we don't think that God in his word really understands the pain and the agony that we go through. The story that we've had is of a daddy who had the most loved son. And one day his older boys came into his tent and they threw a blood-stained coat, the object of his adoration and praise of his boy. And the coat was covered with blood and it was ripped to smithereens. And the boys said, that's all we found. And it plunged Jacob, Joseph's daddy, into 20 years of grief and fear and dread. And what I'm concerned about as a pastor teacher is I think some of you could easily be there. And I know where you're at. We face that in our own family. We want to learn from Genesis 42. We can learn from how to handle this kind of a thing. But as we begin the chapter, we're reminded of Jacob, and Jacob says to his boys, why don't you go down to Egypt? Why, don't you just, why do you just keep looking around at each other? Why do you keep looking around, and why don't you go down and get some food? He continued, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Now, that's a key phrase. This morning, are we going to live or are we going to die? And that's not just physical death. Are you going to die emotionally or are you going to live emotionally? Are you going to live for your family or are you going to die and just exist in your house? Those are issues, very difficult issues, very hard issues. And and Jacob says to his boys, go down to Egypt and get us food so that we can live and not die. Remind us of the early chapters of Genesis. God says in the early chapters, I have given you life. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. But God says, if you walk away from me, thou shalt surely die. And Genesis 3 introduces the kingdom of walking away from God. It's a kingdom of death. And these two phrases, live and die, in the whole Pentateuch, all the way from Genesis to Deuteronomy, become a dominant theme. Choose God, you choose life. Choose to walk away from God, and you choose death. And Jacob is repeating the refrain, are we going to live or are we going to die? Now, why do you think Joseph's brothers are so hesitant to go to Egypt? You don't have to be Dr. Watson to figure that out, right? Why do you think Jacob's sons, Joseph's brothers, don't want to go to Egypt? If you had sold your brother into slavery in Egypt, would you want to go down to Egypt? I want to tell you something. When we do something wrong, we have a hard time going back to the scene of the crime. Even though we're saying the possibilities in a big country of Egypt of them even seeing Joseph is very remote. But if you sold your little brother into slavery and you heard him screaming in a pit and you pulled him out and sold him for money, 20 pieces of silver, you wouldn't want to go. I want to share something with you about what guilt does to us. One of the first lessons of guilt we need to learn today is that it paralyzes us. Some of you are paralyzed in your life. You see, when we allow sin to take control of our life, 
And we go through 20 years of dishonest living. We go through 20 years of denial. We go through 20 years of pretending there's nothing wrong. These brothers have been sitting on a denial for 20 years. Reuben never went in and told his dad, Jacob, your son might not be dead. This is what we did. And I've been living with it all these years. He never said that. These boys watched their dad grieve and mourn and go deeper into depression, and they never said a word. And that kind of denial will paralyze you. And I want to share something about that. You know, those brothers, if you were to ask them about that incident, they probably forgot it. They probably didn't even remember it. Do you know that when you do something really, really horrible, one of the things that almost all of you that are just normal, everyday people would think when something really horrible happens, you know what you do? You convince yourself it didn't happen. It never, never, never happened. And then you go right on living as if it never, never happened. And that's what's been going on for 20 years. But I want to share something with you. In that kind of a state, you deny and you're paralyzed. You're paralyzed by your fear. And what God is starting to do with his family is he's starting to shake them up. He's starting to put the pressure on this family by the, by the circumstances of this famine to get them to face reality. And he puts them in a situation where it is, if we don't go down to Egypt, if we don't face the scene of our crime, we're going to die. We're going to have to go down. And so God begins to weave this intricate story. Remember the dream? Remember Joseph's dream? And little did these brothers know that there's a mighty hand of a sovereign ruler that's working behind the scenes through all of this, bringing these boys to the place where they can, instead of dying, they can find life. Finally, they get their courage up. It says in verse 3, Then the ten of Joseph's brothers, notice ten, it emphasizes the absence of Benjamin. Then the ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, verse 4, Joseph's brother with the others, because he was afraid. See what grief does? See what living 20 years with that pain? He's afraid. He's afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. I just want you to see the insight into the way life is. This is exactly the way life works. When Mary and I lost Mary's youngest brother, the tendency is you go through a time period, I would be scared to death when I didn't know exactly where Jonathan and Joel were. And all of you as parents can identify with that. You see, when there's a trauma, when there was the murder of George Rayfield here in Midlothian, for about three weeks, I was on pins and needles. I can remember Jonathan and Joel just going over to the stadium to watch a Thursday night football game, and I was like paralyzed with fear when I went to pick them up one night when I couldn't find him, and all they were is just at another end of the stands. Parents, you identify with that? Yeah. Fear paralyzes us. What's happening with Jacob is he says, I've already lost my one boy, and I'm going to hold on to this boy. I'm going to hold on to Benjamin with everything I've got. He's not going to go down. And God's going to begin to very tenderly start to work with that fear. Because that snuffs our life out. It makes us paralyzed. It keeps us from being out. It keeps us from doing what we need to do. 
You can't live with that fear. And so slowly but surely, God begins to call attention to this tremendous fear that Jacob has to let now the most loved son, Benjamin, to get out of his sight. This boy is not getting out of my sight. The older brothers go down, ten of them. In verse 6, the plot thickens. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the one who sold grain to all the people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Anybody notice anything in that little phrase? If you like good stories, this is a great story. What's happening? His brothers bow down with their faces to the ground. What does that remind you of? Huh? What just happened? The dream. The dream was fulfilled. Now, you all just read that. You say, ah, you know, big deal. Sure what, the dream. Listen, you live Joseph's life. Because you know what the problem is? Most of us don't believe God's going to fulfill the dream for us. And remember, we shared for it. We shared with this group that our dream is even tougher than Joseph's. Joseph's was fulfilled in the course of about 20 years. Most of our dreams aren't going to really be fulfilled until we're home with the Lord. Our king is not ruling over Egypt. He's ruling in heaven. And the tough one is to believe that. You see, for a New Testament believer, the dream is not to be prime minister of Egypt and have your brothers bowing down before you. The dream for a believer is to be joint heirs with Christ and for all of us to be ruling and reigning in the kingdom of God. And to be honest with you, there's one side of me that that's tough to believe, especially when I'm faced with death. And the Joseph story, you see, God likes to give us some hints. And what this story does for us, it was impossible from a human standpoint for Joseph to have his dream fulfilled. He was a slave in Potiphar's house. How could he ever be bowed down to? Slaves aren't bowed down to. Servants in this world, born-again believers are called to be servants in this world. It's impossible that one day servants will have people bowing down to them. Then Joseph was imprisoned. He was lied about. He spent years of his life in prison. It was impossible for the dream to be fulfilled. And an agnostic comes to you and says, you believe in the sweet by and by? You believe that there's life after death? You believe you're going to reign with Christ? You believe your loved ones are safe in the arms of the Savior? Be realistic. That's just a pipe dream. And there's a part of me that says, maybe it is. That's hard. Especially when I face violent death. And that's what we're here about this morning. We are here today to focus one another on the dream. The challenge for the children, the challenge for the young people, the challenge for every adult in this room, the challenge of our church is to believe in the dream that Jesus has given to us. And all of life depends upon it. If you believe the dream, I want you to get this, if you'll believe the dream, you'll be able to handle the pits of life. If you don't, they're going to crush you. You're going to become cynical, and I work with some cynical, bitter, old people. That people hate to take care of them. They hate to do anything for them because they are so disgruntled, they are so negative, they are so living in the pits that they're just horrible to be around. And there's some other people that they're a joy as they grow older, even though they face some tremendous problems physically, they're a great joy to be around because they, they're still alive. As you look into their eyes, of some people, they're dead. You look into the eyes of other people, and there's light. They're alive. 
And the way you stay alive is to have the right dream that will last forever. But let's not minimize, it's not easy to keep a hold of that dream. And it can't be just something that you dream about on Sunday morning. It's got to become the driving force of your family. And what the story is telling us, it was impossible for Joseph's dream from a human standpoint to be fulfilled. Just as impossible for the dream that I have of one day seeing my Savior face to face and of ruling and reigning with him, it's just as impossible from a human standpoint for that dream to take place. But Joseph's dream took place and became reality. In objective history, factually, there was a time when Joseph, as the prime minister of Egypt, had his brothers come in before him, and they fell on their faces and they bowed before him exactly as God said they would. Now the ironic twist comes. What are you going to do if you're Joseph and your brothers are flat on their face before you? Have you ever gotten a white that in life? How many of you have ever had a business partner that cheated on the books and stole quite a bit of money from you? And you went through 25 years of trying to pay off those debts. And then your business took off again. And the partner that has now been alienated from you suddenly comes into horrible times and he comes to you and he needs help. What are you going to do? I've got him, right? Man, now I can just let him have it, right? How many of you have that inside of you? Everybody does. Now, that's the tension in this story. That's what you need to feel. That's what Moses, the author of this story, wants you to feel. That's inside of every one of us. When you rise to prosperity, when you rise to success, when God gives you the opportunity to get back at those people that wronged you, what kind of a man are you? Well, let's, let's see what kind of a man that Joseph was. It says, so when Joseph's brothers bowed down before him, in verse 7, as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, and he pretended to be a stranger, and he spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? from the land of Canaan, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You're spies! You have come to see where our land is unprotected and vulnerable. No, my lord, no, we're not! Your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men. Not spies. No! You have come to see whether our land is unprotected. No, your servants are, we're, we're 12 brothers. The sons of a man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. Joseph said to them, it is just as I told you. You're our spies, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place until your youngest brother comes down here. That way we can test and see whether your story is true. Send one of your number to get your brother, and the rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. Tested to see if you are telling the truth. That's the phrase to listen to. We are honest men. Tested to see if you're telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days, and he went back to his house that night, and I said, Ha-ha! I finally got him. Is that what's going on? 
What do you think? Why do you, why do you think Joseph is doing this? Why does Joseph react harshly with his brothers? Is it vindictive anger? Or is it wise administration? Now, only the way that the story develops can answer that question. And as the story develops, Joseph puts his brothers in the, in the prisons of Egypt for three days. Where did he spend a lot of years of his life? About seven years, six, six or seven years of his life he spent in prison. Why do you think he allowed his brothers to have that experience? You know, because Joseph learned a lot in prison. That's what we've been learning a lot about in our own lives through his example. And what Joseph is doing, the key phrase here is tested. And when I share something with you, Joseph in this case is an example of the ultimate king of the universe. The ultimate king of the universe tests us. He, he puts us in situations to find out what we're made of. Now, he already knows what we're made of. But he exposes in the flow of life what's really going on in our lives. When we go through hard times, you'll find out what you really are, who you really are. Joseph's brothers are now saying, we are honest men. How many of you will vouch for their honesty? How many of you would go to court and say, these ten guys, I'll give them a character reference? How many of you would do that? Why not? What's wrong with you all? You wouldn't do that? In this chapter that I just read to you, did they tell the truth in this chapter? Did they? What did they lie about in this chapter? Did they tell the truth about their family? What did they lie about in their family? They just said, when one is not. Is that a lie? What I want you to see is, this is what Joseph is going to penetrate. Because that's kind of right on the edge. In other words, really in the narrative, in fact, the narrative of Genesis 42 is going to tell that story about twice. Which means that it wants us to get it. They're going to tell this story. We have, they, they told the truth about, we have a father in Canaan. They could have, if they really wanted to lie... They could have said, we have 11 brothers. They didn't. These brothers said, we have 12 brothers. One is home with dad. One brother is not. Which technically was the truth. He was not. They didn't know what had happened to him. What I want you to see is that there is a subtle flow in the text that maybe there's been a change here. You know what a lot of you believe? A lot of you believe if a person lies to you when they're 25, don't ever trust them when they're 60. And some of you live your life like that. In other words, if a guy ever wrongs you, if a girl ever wrongs you, that forever demolishes your relationship with them. In other words, if you're ever hurt, for example, in the church family, if somebody ever lets you down, you hold that in your craw, and it festers and it goes on forever and ever, and you'll never believe they can change. And that's going to destroy you. You know, because one of the great stories of the Bible, you know what the great story of the Bible is? Now, get this. People change over time. People that murderously sell their brother into slavery in their 20s, in their 40s, can be different people. And all of you need to believe that. Because that's what the story is going to turn on. But I want to share something with you. You can't be naive about the change, especially if you're in a leadership position. 
Is Joseph being vindictive? No. Joseph is a leader. He's one of the prime leaders of Egypt. And it's very important for him to learn how to test character. If you are the manager of a company today, if you are in a leadership position, if you're responsible for hiring and firing, one of the most important responsibilities you have is to test character. Is to find out about character. And what Joseph is doing is he is putting these ten brothers, and these are the ten brothers that were responsible for selling him into slavery, he's putting them on the hot seat. And he's going to find out what they're made of. And so far, they tell the truth. In fact, interesting enough, they give so much detail. You see, what they're doing is, their idea is, we're going to give this guy so much detail, he's going to have to believe that, that he's telling us the truth, but the very details, the very details they give them, give them the crunch, give them the hook in their lives that's going to put them in a tremendous trauma for the next several chapters. Because they tell them, we've got a younger brother. And the younger brother becomes the key for the next couple chapters of, is Jacob going to be able to hang on to his younger brother? Or is God going to make Jacob let go of him? But nobody in the story really knows except Joseph what's going on. And you know, God will weave that story in our own lives. God will maneuver us. And as a leader, you need to learn to test character. Remember, one of the stories that really moved me on honesty when I was in high school, they, they used to tell a story in the Christian high school where I went about a guy that worked his way through business school. He made straight A's in business school. He went out and he worked in banks, started out, you know, just kind of in the office and worked right up through the bank. And he got to be just in his early 30s and a great job in the banking industry opened up. And he was being called to be the president of a bank in his early 30s. And they invited him in for the interview that he flew in, went to the board of directors. They interviewed him. The guy had a tremendous resume, tremendous references. Man, it was just incredible. They went, you know, from 9 o'clock in the morning till about 11.30, just interrogating this guy. Then they broke for lunch. And it was in New York City. And they went to uh, one of these places, kind of like Wyatt's in New York City. And, you know, they, they're going through the line in Wyatt's. Uh, the guy was going through the line, and there was some of the banking board members right behind him. And as he was going through the line, one of the board members noticed that when he got his butter, he shoved his butter, one of the pads of butter, up underneath the mashed potatoes. So nobody would ever see. Like when the teller went, you know, to check it out and was checking it off at the end, it would be buried under the potatoes. Guess who, when the board met in the afternoon to decide whether this young man would get that eminent position that he wanted all of his life, they voted no. Because of one 25-cent patty of butter. Why? Because if you'll cheat with 25 cents, you'll cheat with a million. And a wise leader has to learn how to test that character if you are in business responsibility, school responsibility, any administrative position, one of your most important assets and something you need to ask God for is how to test character and how to discern integrity and honesty. You have to believe that people can change, but you have to learn to not make that change, not believe that it takes place easily. And that's what Joseph is doing. 
He's putting the pressure on his brothers to find out in 20 years in my absence, are they still the same lying, deceiving, violent men? And that's the test that's going on here. He lets them sit in prison for three days. Got them shook up pretty good. I want you to notice something else. Some of the kids might be interested in this. If you've ever seen flicks with brainwashing, interrogation, like where the Russian guy is coming on to an American prisoner. Have you ever noticed what the interrogators do? You're spies! No, we're not! Man, we've got one brother. Our dad's up in Canaan. We've got 12 brothers. Let me cut them out. I'll give you a name. You're spies! You're spies! You're spies! It's called repetition. An interrogator that's not after the truth, but he's after just pounding you down, you just repetition. It's interesting that the technique hasn't changed in several thousand years. It's exactly what they use today in that kind of interrogation. You repeat it, and you hammer it home. And the whole point of it is, is to totally disorient the person that you're interrogating. And Joseph is playing that kind of a role to find out what's the metal of these guys. What are they doing? In the Marine Corps, when they try you out, during your boot camp in the Marine Corps, you'll get that kind of a thing. You'll have things repeated at you over and over and over again. They will accuse you. They will come on to you. Why? They're trying to break you down because they want to find out what you're made of. They want to find out whether you're going to be able to take it. And Joseph's doing that. But suddenly there's a, there's a switch. It says in the third day, verse 18, Joseph said, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. Now that introduces... An interesting thing. See, they think he's a secular Egyptian ruler, but now he comes down and says that I fear God. I reverence God. In other words, he's saying that I'm not just a pagan ruler. I'm not just someone that doesn't have any reverence for the true God. I do believe in God. So you can count on me. Do this and you will live. If you are honest men. Notice his stress again. If you are honest men. I'm stressing that because I want you to learn in your own study of the Word of God what you need to look for. A lot of you ask me, Dave, where does some of that stuff that you talk to us on Sunday morning, where does it come from? Those are some of the things I look for. Repetition is something that all authors use to get across their point. God's word isn't immune from that. God uses those same techniques. You say, how do you know this thing is about honesty? Because over and over again in this chapter, he tests them. Are you honest men? We are honest men. Are you honest men? If you are honest men, that's the test of this chapter. In the kingdom of God, honesty is very very important. So Joseph said, if you're honest men, one of you can stay here in prison. The rest of you can go up and bring your youngest brother down to me, and then your words will be verified. This they proceeded to do. It's a good test. In other words, if they go up, bring Benjamin down, their whole story will be able to check out all the details and will know that they're telling the truth. They said to one another, I want you to look at verse 21. It's very important. Now, what happened when you got a guilty conscience? They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. I want to read that again, and I want you to listen very carefully to these words. When you're away from God, you will not hear cries of distress. When you are away from God, when you are sinning, you will not hear cries of distress. When you're starting to come back, you'll remember. It says, we saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life. Do you hear Joseph crying? Do you hear a 17-year-old kid yelling, brothers, let me out! 
please don't do this. Please don't leave me here. And you hear brothers just going ahead and roasting a goat and eating and not paying any attention. But now 20 years later, you know what they hear? They hear the cry of distress. Husband, if you cheat on your wife and you're away from God, you know what you'll say? She deserves it. She doesn't pay any attention to me. She's angry with me half the time. Our marriage hasn't been any good anyway. The person that I'm with, their marriage isn't any good anyway. The kids, it's not really wise to raise kids in a home like this. Man, alive, we fight constantly. It would be much, much better if we just dissolved this whole thing. Just got rid of this whole thing and just started again. Everybody would live happily ever after. You know what you'll never hear? You'll never hear cries of distress. And I hear them all the time. Every week. Immorality breaks hearts. It makes a wife feel like she disappeared. It makes a husband feel like he disappeared. And people cry. Really cry. They shake when they cry. Because when we break God's law, we hurt people. But the hardened sinner never hears cries of distress. A man can go in with a woman that he's been with for 25 years, that they've raised children with, they have walked through life together with, and with steel in his eye, he can say, I'm going. Because this babe will make me happy. It's what Romans means, without natural affection. Total denial. It happens in every area of life, whether it's violence. We heard a man give his testimony last, last night that up in Chicago he went into a mafia crap game and stole $2 million. He had that kind of brazenness. He made a plan in prison. He would steal, rob a train, and then he'd just wipe out. It would take six guys to do it. He said, in his plan, I'll just shoot five of the guys, the five guys that I need, and then I won't have anybody to squeal on me. And he was saying there was a time in his life where he wouldn't have batted an eye to do that. But you know, last night, he heard cries of distress. Because when he mentioned in his testimony, now that I've come to Jesus... I can't even imagine some of the things that I did before I knew him. And here was a man that brazenly would take life. The judge that sentenced him in Georgia said, Man, I'm going to put you in jail 110 years so that you'll be so old and feeble when you get out, you won't even be able to hold a gun to intimidate people. And now we have a man that by the grace of God was able to get out, and now he traveled all over the place with prison ministry. You know why? Because he hears cries of distress. And there were tears in his eyes last night as he told us about the need to go into prisons to reach people in distress. Where's your heart today? Do you hear cries of distress? Does it hurt you when you do wrong? Are you tender like those kids? Do you notice when I tried to play with those kids about honesty? Did you notice the strong reaction that I got? When I said, isn't it a good deal? You can buy a Nintendo. You got the $100. Did you hear what a whole bunch of them were here saying? No! You know what? When you're away from God, there's no tenderness that way. You don't say no anymore. You cover. 
But when you start coming back to God, suddenly you hear the cries of distress. You remember. And the neat thing about God's love is he can start to gather the pieces of Humpty Dumpty again. And that's what he's doing in this context. The brothers are talking in Hebrew. It's a great irony. Because here is Joseph, the prime minister of Egypt, speaking to them through an interpreter. They don't recognize him because, after all, he was only 17 when they sold him to slavery. He's now a mature man. He's in Egyptian dress. He's speaking a foreign language. His disguise is perfect. And these guys are speaking in Hebrew, which has no relation at all to Egyptian. They're totally different language groups, very different in sound. They would think there's no way that he would get it. It'd be like Brigitte sitting here, even farther away. If Brigitte had another Ger- Austrian, they were talking back and forth in German, they would think, man, none of us understand what they're saying. That's what his brothers think. And Joseph is listening to every word. And what do they say? They're saying, we didn't listen to his cry of distress. They're saying, God is now getting us. He's getting us for what we did. And it says this. He turned away from them. And this is where you find out that Joseph is not being vindictive, but he's testing them. Joseph turned away from them, and he began to cry. But then turned back and spoke to them again. And he had Simeon taken from them. And by the way, remember Simeon, one of the guys that murdered the whole village when Dinah was raped? Simeon was probably the most vindictive one in this group, probably with Judah, responsible for putting Joseph in the pit, most responsible. And Simeon's the one that Joseph holds in custody. Joseph gave orders to fill their bag with grain, to put each man's silver back into his sack, and to give them provisions for their journey. And after this was done, they loaded their grain and their donkeys, and they left. At the place where they stopped for the night, it's only, it's only about a 250-mile trip, so they would have got up in the Gaza Strip from Egypt, just so you'll know, like, the geography. They left modern, just about 10 miles north of Cairo, probably traveled across the Nile River, up a little bit into the area of Gaza. But a good day's journey, too far to be able to turn around and go back. And what happens is one of the guys goes over, his donkey needs a little bit of grain, he opens his sack, and right in the middle of his sack is all the money they paid for the food, just sitting on the top of the grain. He goes back to his brothers, and notice what they say. Their hearts sank, and they turned to each other trembling. They said, what is God, what is God doing to us? What has he done to us? Where do they think God is in relationship to them? Just think about these brothers. What do they think God is doing to them? God is punishing them. I want you to really be honest about this. As you relate to God this morning and you think about God, do you think God is punishing you? Deep in your heart? I know a lot of people that think God is punishing them. You know why you think that God is punishing you? Most of the time when we think that God is punishing us, it's because of a guilty conscience. You see, when you hit the pits, when you hit the hard times, you remember God again. But tragically, the guilty conscience concludes, God is against me. Now, I want to ask you a question. These guys are really in a jam. Their brother is in prison in Egypt. They've got to go up and tell their father that they need to take his pride and joy back to Egypt with this tyrant of a prime minister that uses brainwashing techniques, probably the whole kitten caboodle of this family is going to end up in jail for the rest of their life. 
Then they plead with the guy, saying, we are honest men. Now they find themselves more than a day's journey away from Egypt. They can't go back. And all their money's still in their sack, so it looks like they did what? Looks like they stole all this gigantic amount of food to support their family. They are in trouble. You know, a lot of times you're going to think that we're in trouble too. You can answer the question because you know how this story turned out. Was God for them or was he against them? Was God judging them? Was God trying to destroy them and vindictively wipe out their life? No. Do you know that all these terrible things that they thought from a human standpoint was the worst thing that could ever happen? Nothing's going to ever work out. There's no way this story can ever turn out good. The very things they thought were the bad things were the things that when the story turned and the twist came, it was the hand of the mighty God that was working everything together for good. But a guilty conscience can't ever recognize that. And God keeps working on that. You see, God wants to bring these guys to the place that they'll be honest. And what they're doing is they're remembering Joseph's cries. And now they're realizing, man, God is in this. And God is after us. And God's going to get us. And God uses that kind of a spirit to bring you to what I call a zero place in our lives when we open up and we stop denying and we start dealing with the truth of what's really going on in our lives. They get back to Jacob. They tell him what happened. They repeat. They were honest men. We told them about our 12 brothers. They go through the whole story again. And then it says in verse 35, as they were emptying their sacks, each of the men found out that their money was in every one of their sacks. And their father saw the money pouches, and they were all frightened. Their father Jacob said to them, You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. Notice the cynicism of father Jacob. Then Reuben said to his father, now get this, man, we've got to go down there. You can put my own sons to death if I don't bring back Benjamin. And trust him to my care and I will bring him back. If you know anything about Reuben, Reuben was totally undependable and he's blowing air again. But it shows you the depression of this whole family. Jacob said, my son will not go down. I will not let go of him. His brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow, and the chapter ends. And Jacob's still paralyzed with fear. Now, why is Jacob feeling like this? Because for 20 years, Jacob focused on the torn robes of Joseph's cloak. Now, get this in closing. You're going to make a choice in life. You can be like Jacob, and you can look at the torn jacket of Joseph. You can look at the physical disasters of life, the threat of illness, the threat of famine, the threat of war, and you can plunge into despair and you can start to hang on. You can start to hang on to the loved objects that you still have. Or you can believe. What did Jacob believe? All the objective evidence said that Joseph was what? For 20 years, all the objective evidence said Joseph is bits and pieces on the plains of Canaan. Was it true? Brothers and sisters, was it true? No. What was Joseph really? Well, God took him through a miraculous course, but you know what Joseph really was? The very time when Jacob was filled with despair, 
the very time that he thought death had strangled the life of his son, Joseph was ruling and reigning in Egypt. I close with this. You know, as believers, our dream is tougher to believe, but it's so much greater. You see, in Mary and I, in our life, the last time we saw Mary's youngest brother, David, he was all swollen. He was all black and blue. An undertaker did a horrible job because it's hard to do anything for a boy that's killed in a terrible accident. And they closed the lid, and he's in the ground in a lonely grave in Mitchell, Nebraska. If you think that's not hard, it's hard. If you've never been there, you don't know. And I've never been where Mary's mom and dad have been because it wasn't my boy. But Jacob was there because that's what Jacob faced. And that's what plunged him into despair. And it's those kinds of terrible tragedies in life that can suck all the dream out of your life. But you know what Jesus says? Jesus says he isn't there. That's not what's really happening. He said, don't look at the things which you can see. Don't look at all the evidence. Don't look at the, don't look at the torn jacket. Don't listen to the brothers. Don't believe the grave. Because the dream is a lie. The dream is still a lie. And all the time Jacob grieved, believing he lost his son forever, God was working a miraculous plan to bring dear old elderly Jacob down to Egypt to see his son again. Brothers and sisters, we'll be close today. That's the heartbeat. If you ask me, Dave, what's at the gut of your life? What keeps you going? It's tough for me. But I'm here today to encourage you. I believe in that dream. I believe I'm going to see David again. I believe right now he's at the right hand of his Savior. And he's well and he's strong. He's okay. I believe that for some of our precious loved ones that we've lost recently. It's tough to open up God's word this morning and have to talk about these heartbeats. If I wasn't a Bible exegete, I would, I would not do this. But it's true. And it's the thing that keeps me going. And it's the only comfort that we have. As we cry with Jacob and as we weep with Jacob, we don't have to be paralyzed with fear. Because the dream is still alive. Brothers and sisters, that's a precious good news. The good news for us is much greater than the good news that was for Jacob and Joseph's brothers. It's much greater. And let's get excited about it. Let's encourage one another with it. That's the thrust that we end this morning. I'm trying to encourage you. The dream is alive. Our loved ones, because of Christ, are safe at the right hand of God. And one day we will be reunited to rule together.